0: Well, if you would turn to Philippians chapter two, that is where we are. And last week we looked at the end of chapter one, which really sets us up for the entire book. And and what we saw was in this, Paul delivers a command which governs again the next several chapters. He says, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. Remember, Paul's in prison. He's writing to a group of believers that he is very close to. They have supported him in prayer. They've supported him financially. They supported him by sending him Epaphroditus. We'll talk about who he is later on in our study. Um, But this conduct, then he he breaks it down into two prongs. The first is to stand firm in unity, which he's going to highlight in chapter 2 as we see today, and also to stand firm in boldness in the faith. So we're in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, you need to know that these 11 verses, not only are they, some argue, the most crucial to this book, most scholars will also recognize they're the most difficult to interpret. (laughs) So, uh, we have approximately 35 minutes to unpack 11 verses, which is just torture, because we could spend 10 weeks on this sucker. Uh, I'm not here to discuss, was this an early Christian hymn, blah, blah, blah. There's some great discussions, but for lack of time, we're going to kind of hopefully get the nutshell of what's what's happening here. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, and this hinges back to what's already been highlighted. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection of mercy... Complete my joy and be of the same mind. There it is. That's that first prong of the, the command. He says, by having the same love, being united in spirit, and having one purpose. Remember, this is going to be a problem, appears to be, that in the church there is division. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to meet two ladies, Odia and Sintiki, or Odie and Stinky, who are creating a real problem in the church. So he's got to deal with that. Uh, there's also division because in chapter 3, we're going to see that there's uh, even those that are attacking the gospel and creating division that way. And you have division, I'm sure, happening because of persecution, et cetera. Some are upset because you're compromising or, or, you know, you're taking a stand. We could bend here. You, you get the idea. Uh, and so he's saying, be of one front. Each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. I didn't tell you before uh, today today. This is also one of the most convicting passages of Scripture, <laughs> so get ready. All right. Each of you should be concerned, not only, he says, about your own interests, but about the interest of others as well. And here's the clincher. You should have the same attitude towards one another, that's the same word he used in verse 2 and verse 3, towards one another that Christ Jesus had. Exhibit A. He used himself in chapter 1, he'll use Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of how to live the Christian life later in the epistle, but here he says it's Christ. And watch what he does, who, and this could be a hymn that he's incorporated into the the epistle, Uh, it's debated, who though he existed in the form of God, that's referring to Christ, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. means really to, to, to take a hold of for one's personal gain. But emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee, will bow in heaven and on earth, And under the earth, uh, being universal, everything is going to recognize Him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's unpack this text uh, because it is certainly juicy. So here we go. All right. He starts off with these clauses, and unfortunately, English translations seem to, in the way they render it, you could take it as, well, if this might be, no, no, no. The way the construction is, it's really best to translate, since there is. In other words, since there's encouragement in Christ, since we are comforted and provided by love, since we have fellowship in the Spirit, and since there's affection and mercy. So these are, Paul's saying, these are, these are things that are actually happening. Now look at these, because this is key here as we, we look at this text. The encouragement in Christ. <clears throat> He's talking about a spiritual boost. This is a, a can of jolt that you just drink, right? Uh, spiritually. Paul is stating that since the knowledge of the Lord has helped in their faith, they're to respond acor- accordingly. So, the first thing he says the encouragement you have in Christ, what you know about who he is and, and, and what he's done. And, and Paul knows they know that because he's seen them demonstrate it outwardly. He also was there when he taught them all right so he knows secondly any comfort provided by love whose love paphroditus paul the saints for one another no i think that the context and i heard it it's christ's love i think it's what he's addressing scholars debate um i'm going somewhere with this let me unpack the next two fellowship in the spirit o'brien in his commentary says what we're dealing with is that one body in christ the idea that the, what the Spirit allows us to do is why we can come in a room with 85, 90 guys this morning and various walks of life, various theological perspectives on various issues such as eschatology, et cetera, and yet we can come together around the Word. Why? Because we have one common bond through Christ, right, and the work of the Spirit. So there's that fellowship that comes. And the last one is affection or mercy. These two terms are almost always, always used by Paul to refer to God. So what am I saying, or what I think, what Paul is saying? What he's talking about is all that the Lord has done and is doing. It's focused on the Lord. It's not about what we're obtaining from one another. He's taking our attention to there and he says, if God has done all this, then this. Right? You know where he's going. It's a little bit what he does with Romans, right? Or Ephesians. Ephesians, the first three chapters is all about what God is doing for us. And then he moves to what we need to do. Romans, verse 11 chapters, it's all about being declared right before God. Justification is the, the term. 12 to the end, it's about doing. And, and he's doing the same thing here in this verse, in chapter 2, verse 1. It is, look what God has done for us. It springs out of what he's highlighted in chapter 1, and it's going to drive us into what he's going to state, and that is complete my joy, be united. Questions on this? This is huge, because he's going to say this is, it it reminds me of Romans 12, right? This is your reasonable service. This is the least you could do after all he's done and is doing for you, right? Whew. All right. Well, that's good. All right. We'll move right along then. All right. So in verse 2 then, he takes all this. So. Keep that in mind as you read this, because the English translations don't always highlight. This is a statement of a, a affirmative, a affirmative statement. It's, it's one of this is what God is doing and has done. And then he moves into verse two. Complete my joy. What's the joy? What's he talking about? Relationship with Christ. Relationship with Christ. Whose relationship? His. Theirs. Any other thought? What's he highlighted earlier in chapter 1? You are partners of the gospel, right? He says this in in verse 3, that that opening Thanksgiving 3 through 11 of chapter 1. I wrote down, it's the passion for the church becoming like Christ. That's his joy. That's what he longs for. We're going to, later on when we get to chapter four, we're going to deal with the theology of joy. don't often think that way, but what is it that gives us joy? When I have a bowl full of cookies and cream ice cream? (laughs) Uh, When my kids get an A? When I get a big bonus, is that what gives us joy? Here's Paul in prison, and what's giving him joy? that the church is acting like Christ. He's poured a lot of time and energy into this church. He loves them dearly and he desires that they are like the Lord, right? In fact, he's gonna come back to that in verse five because the Lord is who they're gonna model their lives after and how they interact with one another. So I think that's what he's dealing with here And so he gives them this laundry list, right, in verse 2, the same mind, same love, being united in spirit. One commentator makes this comment, it's at the bottom of your notes, he says on page 1, thus, in four different ways, Paul repeats the same idea over and over again, hoping that the Philippians will get the point. Unity is essential for spiritual growth of the church, the progress of the gospel and victory of believers over their adversaries." That's where he's headed, right? The call for unity. I think one of Satan's greatest tactics is within the church, and that's to bring disunity. Right? Why not? You shackle the, the feet of the ministry that's going on, so you hinder what they're doing. You also tarnish the name of Christ. I mean, it's brilliant if you're Satan, right? Go for the juggler, that's what he's doing. Create disunity, and, and Paul knows that, and he says, don't go there. We, we need to be unified, and, we, and, and the way to do that, he, he gives us in verses 3 and 4, how we're to be united. He says, first of all, you're to treat one another more important than yourself, right? That's what he highlights in verse 3. <clears throat> instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity in the church yes even in the church notice i wrote in your notes paul's call for a proper view of one's own unworthiness before god in other words paul's saying get your eyes off of everyone around you or off yourself Focus on your relationship to the Lord, and then your interaction with others is going to come into play, right? And let's face it. If you have a proper view of God, then you're going to realize what a louse you really are. (laughs) Um, That's why Paul can state later in ministry, I am the worst of sinners. It took him a while to get there, because when he first spoke, when he first talked about him being the worst, it was the worst of the apostles, or the least of the apostles. But as ministry progressed, and by the time his latter writings, he says, "I'm the worst of sinners. How can that be? Because Paul's got a better understanding of theology, a better understanding of who God is and how he is. Yeah, am third first fellow second And I remember my grandmother saying, "You know how you spell joy, <coughs> Jesus others than yourself, right? And it's the same. And then she'd say, well, you know what the good book says? Well, it wasn't in the good book per se, but she also said cleanliness is... You know what the good book says? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, it's not in the good book, but thank you, Grandma. <clears throat> Being a good German-American, she, uh, she wanted things clean. Yeah, Gary. Gary. We agree to disagree. <laughs> and, and, um, yeah, and that may vary on, if I'm on an elder board and we're calling a pastor, theologically, we might cross the T's a little bit different than we would in a, in a setting such as this, right? So, yeah, I mean, but that doesn't mean we, we throw bombs and grenades on the other side and say, ah, oh, you know what a heretic they are. Because what did Paul just say earlier in chapter one? If Christ is preached, even if, it's, even if it's done with the wrong motive, I rejoice. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, who uh, came as the president when I was working at Dallas, it's kind of like the coordination of uh, King David when he became president. It was amazing. But I think he's a great model of one who, who, who's not going to... Uh, to me, he, he just displays humility and uh, for unity for the cause of Christ. He's not going to compromise the word. But uh, anyway, that's a whole other... Side note. So treating one another, it's a proper view of God, and he says, also look to the interests of others. He doesn't say you neglect yourself. He even mentions that, right? But you don't elevate self to where it eclipses the other person. Chapter 2 verse 21, look at this, I'm going to show you some cards, but it says, others are busy with their own concerns, not those of Jesus Christ. You can't help but wonder if Odie and Stinky are more concerned about that they get to have the right color and carpet in the foyer. Right, you you don't know what's going on, but he, he said, "No, no, no. We got to be unified here." So he establishes that, but he then nails the puts the nail into the coffin, going into verse five, and that is it's Christ. So let's look at this. This this becomes the prime example in the text. <clears throat> now, this next scene, uh, five through eleven scholars call the kenosis passage. I'm not gonna test you over that, but kenosis means self-emptying because the text tells us that he emptied himself, referring to Christ. So it's sometimes referred to as the kenosis passage. And what is Paul doing here? He's showing us Christ as an example of humility. In so doing, this hymn demonstrates that god jesus is fully god and he's fully man let's look at this um the first thing we're going to see is that jesus existed in the form of god that's what he says in verse six who though he existed in the form of god the term form speaks of essence intrinsically jesus is god ontologically if you want the term and and by the way Notice in verse 7, he says he, he took on the form of a servant. He was a servant. In essence, he was a servant. He came and, and gave, right? <clears throat> and so the, the term is used a second time there in the immediate context. But, and so what he's dealing with, ontologically, Jesus is God. Hebrews 1. He, Jesus is the exact representation of God. So he's highlighting that in this, and yet he makes a distinction between Jesus and God in personhood. Watch what he says. He did not regard equality with God as something to be taken over. In other words, in this pre-existent form, Jesus understood there is a distinction between His role as Son and God's role as the Father, and yet ontologically, or in essence, they're the same. Uh, Theologians call this binitarianism. That is that Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus said, "You see me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one." All right, and I know it's like, "Who? How do I get my head around that?" Especially at seven in the morning, this is is a difficult concept. But Paul is in this hymn stating Jesus is fully God, and yet He is distinct, and. Mole in his book, it's an older book, but it's uh, stellar, is The Origin of Christology. Moule states, The preexistent son regarded equality with God not as excusing him from the task of suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation. Not my will, Father, but yours. So in the garden, you see... Jesus acquiescing to the will of the Father to fulfill the role of redemption for humanity. And so Paul says, Look, look at Exhibit A, this Christ, who was God yet distinct. All right, that's the first thing he nails down. Questions on that first part? Because that's huge. It's difficult. Yeah, Kyle. So Jesus didn't Correct. Not presume upon God, the the Father's will. Um, That was the problem with Satan, right? Satan presumed upon the Father's will, of course, Satan was just an angel, Jesus is God, right? He is the pre-incarnate Son, Uh, all right? So that's the first part. So we see fully God, questions on it, we all, all right? The second part is, but? He says, excuse me, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. So the second thing we see is Jesus willingly giving up his pre-incarnate glory. Now, I have heard, uh, I have had students who will say, well, he set aside some of his divine attributes when he came to earth. If he did, he's no longer God. When Jesus came to earth, he could not have set aside any attributes, (laughs) And that's why John will state in chapter 1, we saw his glory. It's still all there. How do you know where Nathaniel was, right? He's, he's, you'll see glimpses of those divine attributes. So if he sets anything aside, he, but it says he emptied himself. So how do you handle that, Hopheditz? Because of the next phrase. What's the next phrase say? It's a participle of means. How does he empty himself? By taking on. Uh, it's, it's like doing math with my kids. This new math they do drives me nuts at school. It's like, well, you know, it's so much easier if you just do this. Oh, that's not how we're supposed to do it, right? This kind of math, what Paul's saying, we don't subtract, we are adding. That's how you emptied. He emptied himself <clears throat> when he took on human form. The text tells us, right, he took on the form of a slave, And I mentioned there in your notes that Jesus did not surrender any attributes, otherwise He'd no longer be God, and we're dealing with an addition. So, He leaves that pre-incarnate glory to come to earth. Now, you you know where Paul's going with this. Uh, This isn't a treatise on Christology, though it's there. It's an issue on humility. And he said, here is God in all His glory, Jesus Christ, Willing to take on human form, giving up all of that glory to come down to earth for us. And if that's not unbelievable, if not, remember, by the way, remember our, our folks in Philippi? Many of them are what? Who are the residents of Philippi? What do we talk about? Roman citizens. Roman citizens. They're retired veterans who've been granted tax exemption, et cetera, et cetera. The thought of becoming a slave? <laughs> Horrific. But it gets worse, because notice where Paul goes with this. He says, by looking like other men, he humbled himself, we'll get to that in a minute, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not, not only did he become a slave, he also was crucified. And to a Roman citizen, you were exempt from crucifixion. That, that, that's a whole other matter, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what Paul's stating, not only did he exist fully in God, he's fully man became, he, he's still distinct even as a man. Because in the latter part of verse 7, he's, Paul is very careful here, yes, he became man, but he doesn't have a sinful nature. So there's still a distinction. You, you love this, don't you? I, I do. Paul's, Paul is so careful, he's saying he's distinct from the Father, yet he's God. He's human, yet he's distinct because there's no sinful nature. And elsewhere in scripture, we can see this. Uh, Romans 8, for instance, it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he's not. And so I wrote, Jesus changed in form, but not content. God cannot sin. Jesus is fully God. You say, well, how then was he tempted in the wilderness if he's not? He's still human. <laughs> I know. It, it, there is a mystery. There's a tension here. There's no doubt about it. Questions on this? You didn't think we'd get into the they call this the hypostatic union, kenosis passage, all by seven thirty. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. At this <laughs> point in time, Jesus' form changed forever, and at that point, he has human form. Yes, and in that sense, there is human form, and-, and that's what we see in Revelation when he appears in glory, etc. He's still God. So, yeah, if we want to dr- draw that distinction. Uh, yeah, Micah. If, if Moses could not even look at God without dying, how does this is part of the distinction between God being a different human I being? He... I know. This, this is the hard part. He's still fully God. And... and When John says, we beheld his glory, that's the same term used in Exodus, the end of Exodus, with Moses seeing the hiding of God and saying, I I saw the glory, reflecting it. There is a tension. There is a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And someone to say that God certain, at certain points in His earth, Jesus when He was on earth veiled His glory or His attributes or didn't use them at certain points, but I think we have to be careful because we see glimpses of the divine attributes through the gospels. And so, He's still fully God, He's still fully man, it's a tension. Paul isn't here to discuss the hypostatic union and go to great discourse. What he's trying to show is look at what God has done for us. And if he can humble himself, I'm gonna move on, Gary, because of time. If he can do this, then, then my goodness, who are you to treat your brother or sister in Christ inappropriately or less or inferior? I mentioned the crucifixion the ancient writer cicero this is the bottom of the note said let the very name of the cross be far not only away from the body of a roman citizen but even from his thoughts his eyes and his ears you will find very few references to roman crucifixion in roman writings of the first three centuries and and it was so horrific that domitian who was far from (laughs) gracious and kind and sweet Uh, he eliminated the scourging phase of crucifixion because it was so bad. So the idea when Paul says, this guy not only humbled himself, but he did it to the point of death on a cross. to To the Philippian reader, that is huge. That's very significant, far more than I think what we realize sitting here in 2019 in the States. But to the reader in the first century living in Philippi, that, that would be enormous. Well, he highlights the divine attribute, the human attribute, yet makes some distinction there. And then he says, this is the whole, another aspect of this, humbling yourself, God's going to exalt you. And he does that with Christ, right? As a result, God exalted him, by the way, notice in verse 10, so that at the name of, and he uses his earthly name, Jesus. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth." He, he's, he's alluding to Isaiah, uh, I, I, not, not alluding, he is, this, this hymn is echoing uh, two passages in Isaiah I want you to see. Look at Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42, verse 8. i am the lord this is yahweh speaking and what does he say that is my name this hymn that paul includes in chapter 2 says i will give him the name that is above every name in other words jesus is yahweh he is god look at isaiah 45 don't miss this this is very significant Isaiah 45, starting in verse 22. Isaiah 45, 22 States, turn to me so that you can be delivered, all you who live on the earth, for I am God. I have no peer. I solemnly make this oath that I say is true and reliable. Every knee will bow to me, right? Every tongue will solemnly affirm they will say to me, yes, the Lord is the powerful deliverer. That's a, that's our savior, yeah. Could I add that Jesus' name is the same as Joshua in the Old Testament? Yes. And Joshua means God saves, mm. and that's the reason he said, you shall call his name Jesus, because he shall save his people from his sin. And the angel picked that out, because that's who he is. Yeah, Eugene's that's correct, he said, The name Jesus is a derivation of Joshua, which means God saves. He is the, yeah, he is the deliverer, right? That's what the text is saying. But he's he's a deliverer who is God Almighty. It's not all of a sudden Jesus becomes God, and there's those that try to espouse that. He's been God. That was already highlighted earlier in the hymn. What has been is seen again. And Ritterboss in his theology states there in your notes. The whole exaltation of Christ in the present and the future is directed towards this, that God shall be all and all." And so we see this exaltation, because Christ humbled Himself, He is exalted. Why include the hymn? What's going on here? I quote again, sorry, another quote, but Hawthorne in his commentary, Hits the nail on the head. He says, thus, in the divine economy of things, by giving a person receives, by serving, he is served, by losing his life, he finds it, by dying, he lives, humbling himself, he is exalted. Our eyes need to be on Jesus, he says to the church. I wrote down narcissism, (laughs) you know what that is, right? Suffers from spiritual cataracts. It fails to see reality. He said, our eyes are on the Lord and we then need to live according to that. And that spills over. Let me give you three things to hang on your beak this week. <clears throat> Arrogance in the church is often subtle. oh, Very subtle. But it's always lethal. It rears its head in self-righteousness and self-centeredness. Right? You've seen it. I heard the uh, uh, this isn't a church in the area, all right? But an individual was asked to play the piano, and she came back to the group and said, yes, I finally have power. I'm <laughs> sure playing the piano in church is going to give you that, but go, go for it, sister. Richard Greenham, a Puritan minister, makes this very profound statement. And look at it. It's there in the notes. The more godly a man is and the more graces and blessing of God are upon him, the more need he has to pray because Satan is busiest against him and because he is readiness to be puffed up with a conceited holiness. I love Howard Hendricks. He used to say the, the pastor that stood at the door and everyone's exiting after the sermon saying how wonderful the sermon is. Howard Hendricks called that the glorification of the worm. That's what we're dealing with here, right? Who are we in light of what Christ has done for us? So careful. It, 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 it's, <laughs> it's very dangerous. Arrogance. The business world knows that. Read Beers' work, read other uh, Jim Collins from Good to Great, and or How the Mighty Fall. He understands that one of the major components of the downfall of uh, businesses is arrogance. I worked for an investor a little bit who was trying to uh, include uh, Christian ethics, and one of the litmus tests was determining whether a company was arrogant or not, because he said that they're going to fall, and I'm not going to give money to a company that's arrogant. <clears throat> Invested is it interesting? Spilling over. Well, it's true in the church. And Paul understands that. And he says, Christ is our model. Uh, you know, you can discuss all the theology of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But the, the bottom line, Christ came and, and he took on, servant, uh, on a servanthood for us. Arrogance is antithetical to Christ, antithetical to Christ. A Christ follower walks in humility. What are we told in Luke 9? What did Jesus say? If you want to follow me, what do you do? Not only to take up your cross, what else? Deny yourself. It's what John understood in John 3. He, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. Right? Jesus said, you want to follow me? You deny yourself. And you're going to take up a cross. And that fits with the last one. Arrogance ultimately seeks to dethrone Christ in our lives. Doesn't it? Look at Acts 20. This is... The words that Paul gives, he he knows he's going to go to Jerusalem and be arrested. He meets with the elders from Ephesus at Miletus before going. And he states, when he arrived, he said to them, and and this is Acts 20, verse 18, You yourselves know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day, etc., serving the Lord, watch this, with all humility. Of anyone who had right to be arrogant who had a right to say, no, 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 no. I'm in charge here. Paul says, I didn't do that. I served with humility. He understood. I've given you a little exercise, if you want, during the week. That's on the next page. But I I talk about doing a little litmus test in your own life. Answer the questions, right? Do you have to be first to be the best of the best? Are you a sore loser? Can you take constructive criticism? Do you like to be in charge? What's your favorite thing you talk about? My wife has a great exercise. She's a licensed mental health counselor. She said one of the things she does with family dynamics is she brings out a ball of yarn, and every time you talk, you get the yarn, the ball. And she said it's very interesting because there'll be one person who has a lot of yarn in their lap by the time they're done. Yes. What is the last time you gave your, of your time to assist someone else? These are some questions to toy with. D.L. Moody, you know the name. This is the bottom of the notes. A man can counterfeit love. He can counterfeit faith. He can counterfeit hope and all the other graces, but it's very difficult to counterfeit humility. And I would argue that counterfeit is easy to detect, except for the person who has it. (laughs) And Paul says to the church at Philippi, Look to Christ. After all He's done, the least you can do is serve your brother or sister in Christ, right? I told you it's going to be a convicting passage, (laughs) and it is. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this beautiful hymn, which we didn't do justice today. We could unpack that sucker for the next 10 weeks. But the bottom line is very clear. Our eyes need to be on Christ who is the ultimate example of humility and obedience. And Lord, by looking to Him, we realize what grace has been lavished on us, that who are we to, to look down at our brother or sister? Who are we not to rejoice when God is working in their life? Who are we not to rejoice when you are using them for your glory? For after all, we are all in this together together so that you can be exalted. And to that end we pray, amen.